Some people call me Maurice. Wee woo. And welcome to Planet of the Steve Miller Bands. And I am Become Death, Destroyer of Worlds. Nice. And what you didn't see was it had that perfect little spray when I opened it. Like it was like <laughs> like a beer commercial. <laughs> <laughs> We should get like dueling beer subscriptions. Like you order one for me and I order one for you. I've, I've basically become so boring. Like I only really drink <laughs> hazy IPAs. Fuck <laughs> it, I'm 40. I, I know what I like. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right? We're past the stage of experimenting. I'm not going to go bust out some new crazy fancy ass beer with platinum flakes in it or something. <laughs> You're not going to drink us like a strawberry sour, right? You're like, yeah. my taste buds can't handle that joyride. I remember a while back, like everybody in my parents' generation discovered, I think it was like Firebomb or it was some sort of liquor. Mm. And every time I'd hear about parties. Fire, fireball. <laughs> fireball, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and like everybody was like, oh, we drank Fireball. It's awesome. It's like, what mm. are you, are you 21? You want some Gorschlager? <laughs> My family historically had only ever like really drank Bud Light. They were defined by that beer choice. <laughs> Recently, they've all started drinking 805. Yeah, that's another big one. That 805 is not bad. I like 805. It's the perfect stepping stone from Bud Light to like a beer that has taste. Yeah. <laughs> like it has just enough taste to like welcome you <laughs> over <laughs> to that side. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> No, but I welcome when I go over to like my dad's house and he has a fridge mm. full of eight oh fives. I'm like, okay, like, this is this yeah. is good beer. I'm I'm, I'm down with this. It's it's much better than what it could be. So, Dave, if if your if your week was a color, how was your week? Mauve. Wait, do you have a Saturn? <laughs> do you have a Saturn Five behind you? I do. It's a uh, it's a Lego Saturn Five. It, it's awesome. Saturn Five was not associated with the uh, nuclear program, but still, it's a giant ass rocket. And it breaks apart into its component pieces, and there's even a little lunar lander inside one of them. So, become death, destroyer of worlds, is a quote from Oppenheimer. Yes, and he took it from the bag. bag of, you can say it. The Bhagavad Gita. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> And he, he said it after the we we successfully created a nuclear weapon, and um, and what are we talking about, Dave? Because I think this leads into it. We're talking about nukes, nukes, nuclear weapons. Not to be confused with cukes, uh, cucumbers. <laughs> cukes. They've had just as big of a cultural impact as nukes, but <laughs> it's been slightly more positive. So. How safe is our arsenal, Neil? I know we're going to get into this in more detail. Spoiler alert, it is not safe at all. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we, we've been on the verge of being suicidal now for 70 years. Yeah. Since we uh, used the first nuclear weapon and entered the atomic age. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people still can't pronounce nuclear correctly mm -hmm. and say nuclear. <laughs> and it drives me crazy. Like, I remember when George W. Bush would say it that way. I was like, it's nuclear. You're the leader yeah. of the free world. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Please try to pronounce things correctly. Take your job seriously. <laughs> and, you know, for a long time, there was like this, this idea that if there was a nuclear war, 
Oh, we, we could be fine. You know, there was the whole idea of duck and cover where there was a video with Bert the turtle. And, hide, hide under your yeah. desk. Right? And they, they parodied it brilliantly on South Park because there was a volcano and all the lava was coming and they showed this duck and cover video. So that's what people did. And the, the lava rolled over and they turned to skeletons. Yeah. <laughs> to me, what's fascinating about America is that we just, we're very good at normalizing and rationalizing things, right? Like, our culture became okay with the idea that you might be vaporized at any moment and that <laughs> you you should just solve that by building a, a bomb shelter under your house and stocking it full of like pork and beans so you could <laughs> live on canned foods for six months and then come up to a nuclear hellscape. Yeah, I mean, we've just kind of, I mean, we look back at bomb shelters, aside from the, the survivalists out there, looking back at bomb shelters is a quaint remnant of like the 50s and 60s mm-hmm. when people thought there was still, you know, a way to survive and keep living normally mm-hmm. after nuclear Armageddon. <laughs> I mean, the fact of the matter is, is there was almost uh, 14,000 nuclear weapons in the world. Mm-hmm. And our civilization only continues to exist because of the concept of mutually assured destruction. Mm-hmm. But as more and more countries get nukes, that makes less and less sense. The United States used to have this duplicative effort to the nth degree where you would have non-military targets that would have ICBMs pointed at them or targets that didn't really pose any sort of like attack capability that would have like 80 ICBMs pointed at them. And it was kind of like, why does that site have 80 ICBMs pointed at it? And, you know, it's just this madness that infects everything where there was never enough. And I think mm-hmm. that permeated our culture, which is like we always need more and more our capacity has to exceed our mm-hmm. enemy by a factor of 10 well we uh we actually have less nuclear weapons than russia now mm-hmm. but i think ours are more likely to work because i think a lot of russia's they'd hit the button and it would just sort of like some steam would shoot out and it would it would but that's tip that's, over. A, that's actually <laughs> like a really pertinent question like would they work i mean if you think about the age of a lot of these so the a lot of the minuteman missiles are from the 70s you know, the elect the electronics and the wiring and that like can only be tested to a certain extent. And yeah, as these parts age, you know, they become way less reliable. So I think it's fair to question the you know, would would all of ours fire? You know, some would for sure. <laughs> well, and up until a few years ago, they were using floppy disks mm-hmm. to transfer key codes and things. And, you know, when I say floppy disks, I mean It was a version of the five and a quarter floppy disk that was uh, actually floppy. Like Mm -hmm. it had just had the (laughs) the slim plastic casing on it, but it was the size of a record. But uh, yeah, so the U.S. and Russia, their their arsenal makes up almost all of the nuclear weapons when Mm -hmm. you look at numbers. Mm -hmm. And then there's the U.K. and France and China. They have them. And then there's India and Pakistan. And that for me wins the award of most likely to be used. Because they're always snarling at each other. Yeah, Israel has them. Mm-hmm. Iran soon is going to have them. Mm-hmm. North Korea has them. Mm-hmm. And in the past, South Africa, Belarus, Kazakhstan, and Ukraine all had nukes. So I think I think the key question for me is, is the hubris of nuclear, not just nuclear power, because I think there's a hubris associated with that, but the quest to, to, to split the atom and, and control nature in that way. What makes us mm-hmm. think we can control this power? I mean, seriously, right? It's, I, I feel like, there's some big idea people back there and they implement these plans and then everybody else has no idea what's going on. But the, uh, the entire concept of mutually assured destruction to me reeks of lack of imagination. There are other ways mm-hmm. to resolve this aside yeah, from just exactly. building more and more weapons. Nazi Germany was trying to create mm-hmm. a bomb. And so there was this 
rush to try to beat them to it. They would be less inclined to use it if we have one. So that was where it started. Now, the U.S. admits to 32 broken arrow serious nuclear incidents, and that's defined as an unexpected event involving nuclear weapons that Mm -hmm. results in the accidental launching, firing, detonating, theft, or loss of a weapon. And to date, there are six nuclear weapons that were never recovered. So Mm -hmm. hear that, terrorists? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) One of them is in a swamp in Georgia. If you want to go digging in a swamp... There's one out there. So we've got uh, North Carolina in 1961. A B-52 broke apart in flight and dropped two bombs. One landed in someone's backyard. The actual um, mm-hmm. nuclear material did not in any way yeah. detonate. But can, can you imagine the conspiracies if Goldsboro had been nuked? People would have just assumed it was on purpose. There was uh, an incident over Spain where a refueling plane somehow, I I don't know exactly what happened, but in some way it made contact with the plane it was refueling with and exploded. And I think three bombs dropped into the sea just off the coast of Spain. And I believe that they were all recovered, but one of them took weeks and weeks and weeks to be found. And after that, Spain told us that we couldn't fly our bombers. (laughs) <laughs> over them anymore <laughs> like sorry yeah uh then there's the damascus incident which is what command and control was about mm-hmm. and that was in 1980 and mm-hmm. that stemmed from a, a, a repair technician dropping an eight pound socket wrench and the, the 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 titan II missile that was there was seven stories high when the socket wrench fell it punctured a fuel tank and caused an explosion which mm-hmm. sent the nuclear payload flying several miles and they they mm-hmm. lost it for a while and then there's all these you know False alarms where either side thinks that there's incoming nukes and has to really think about, is this a real attack? Does it make sense for this to be an attack right now? Do we do we react to it? There was a famous one where, so this was during Carter's administration, his national mm-hmm. security advisor woke up and said in 2.30 in the morning and said they were, there were 200 missiles coming at us. And then, then they came back and said, actually, it's 2000. And it was a false alarm. It was like a faulty computer chip that cost 46 cents. Think about that. Like these little tiny parts of the chain that can break and cause just chaos. Well, and then there was Stanislav Petrov, who was a lieutenant colonel in Moscow. And he detected five uh, U.S. nuclear missiles inbound mm-hmm. to Russia and cooler heads prevailed and he didn't uh he did not escalate it and you know others have said since then oh you know they had other safe safety checks in place that would have stopped it um them retaliating but you know he he might have possibly saved the world (laughs) yeah there are like probably lists and lists of these heroes out there right you think about the cuban missile crisis and the story of the submarine commander who you know had to make a decision not to fire because they they didn't have any information right so people had to make these decisions um, and I think human nature is to not want to be the person that starts World War III. Well, and on top of that, like the instructions are, if you don't have information, if you're cut off in communication, mm-hmm. you act, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's supposed to be the, the assumption is that if you've been cut off from communication, it's because something bad has happened. And so mm-hmm. you need to retaliate. And, you know, the faultiness of that, I think, is apparent on its face the beginning sequence of war games is i think appropriate here we've got they have a scenario uh where two officers are given um approval to launch and they go through the whole sequence and one of them at the end decides he wants to double check and he can't reach anyone on the phone and he's like i don't want to be the guy that like you know murders millions and millions of people michael madsen is the other guy on the uh, the other end he points a gun at the guy and is like orders are orders you know, if you don't mm-hmm. do it, I'm going to shoot you. And it ends up that that's, that's a drill, right? 
And that's the premise of the movie is therefore they need a computer that can do it <laughs> automatically to take the human factor out of it. And then Crimson Tide, you know, they get a partial message and Gene Hackman interprets it as there's an attack and they need to retaliate. Mm-hmm. And Denzel Washington disagrees and there's like dueling mutinies trying to prevent it. And they have a, <laughs> a, an amusing conversation about horses. And, ha ha, funny. Everything ends up being okay. For my money, that's Denzel Washington's best performance. Really? It's just a really great movie. Wow. Uh, that's a bold statement because Denzel got so many I mean, great. He does. I'm a Training he, Day fan he, myself. He, I think Training Day is his peak. When he talks the dude dude through uh, uh, repairing the radio using a Star Trek metaphor, <laughs> like it's just fantastic. <laughs> he had you with the Star Trek metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> We listed a, a ton of movies here that star nukes in them in some yes. capacity. And you you did a great job of dividing these into categories. So nukes as drama, we've got Crimson Tide, The Day After, which I think for those of us born in the 70s, I think we were definitely too young for when that first mm-hmm. aired. But I remember watching that in grade school. It was terrifying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Failsafe, 13 Days, On the Beach, and then China Syndrome. which but is Failsafe, of course, being the movie where we accidentally... Uh, through a, a cascade of events, accidentally nuke Moscow. And so to prevent all-out war, the president ends up nuking uh, New York City is uh, attrition for that, oh, where yeah. his 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 son or daughter was at the time. So, so then you got the nukes as savior. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is by no means a exhaustive list. These are the ones that came came to us. But there's Armageddon, where we use nukes to... Blast I don't want to close my eyes. <laughs> I don't want to fall asleep because I'd miss you, baby. The Iron Giant and then Independence Day. I know there's more farcical movies about nuclear weapons, but the only one I could really think of, and it's sort of the big heavy, is Dr. Strangelove. When Dr. Strangelove came out, people thought it was a fiction, right? It was meant to <laughs> sort of scare and provoke. But I don't think at the time people realized how possible, <laughs> how, how actually that was drawn from a list of possible scenarios that could actually happen. In the movie, you have a general that goes outside the chain of command to launch an attack. And that capability was actually, that was a real thing. Eisenhower was really you know, hesitant to approve the sort of expansion of the number of people who could order an attack, but there were all these contingencies built in. You know, For example, if the president couldn't be reached and there needed to be a decision made, right? you had to build out the capacity for other people to make those decisions. And so Dr. Strangelove was definitely like a commentary on that and how well, that the, could definitely go wrong. Mm-hmm. And the general was a wacko, right? Mm-hmm. He, he was a... By, bought into all sorts of crazy conspiracy theories and his name was unsubtly jack d ripper <laughs> he, he thought that he was a fluoride uh conspiracy theorist he yeah thought that fluoride was like a mind control medium <laughs> in, in today's nomenclature he would believe in pizzagate and uh 5g things like that the 5g oh man yeah, 5G. yeah he'd be a 5 g <laughs> for sure <laughs> Yeah, there's movies with warnings, warnings against nukes, Day the Earth Stood Still, the Terminator series, War Games, which we mentioned. Terminator 2, the best movie ever. Oh, man, that movie's fantastic. I love it. It's my favorite <laughs> action movie. And what's great about that movie, I love the sound design because you can close your eyes and know exactly what's happening. Mm-hmm. Like everybody sort of has their own sound. There's that chase through L.A. at the beginning, and... It, it it really is symphonic. I was so obsessed with that Guns N' Roses song when that movie came out. <laughs> you know which one I'm talking about? Yes. You could be my 
Then we've got documentaries, Fog of War, which is fantastic. Love That's that with movie. Uh, Robert McNamara, right? Yeah, Errol Morris film. I think gives a really amazing overview of all of these interconnected events from mid-century, you know, everything from World War II all the way through the Vietnam War and beyond. And then Command and Control, which I actually watched last night. It's interesting watching it, and you have these older men that, you know, military men who've seen a lot, and they're in the movie talking about what happened at the Damascus incident, basically mm -hmm. like weeping openly during the documentary. And that's how like impactful it was on their lives. So this is the documentary based on the book by Eric Schlosser, right? Yes. Yeah. Interestingly, I read it. I read it on my honeymoon, which is a weird book <laughs> to read on your honeymoon. Uh, then we got the nukes as monsters, obviously the big boy, Godzilla. Well, and that Godzilla is interesting because he starts off sort of as the nuclear power as wrath against Japan mm -hmm. and then ends up, ends up being Japan's protector, which sort of is an interesting way to look at the U.S.'s relationship with Japan since mm -hmm. we became their de facto protector after mm -hmm. World War II. Many layers. So I, I rewatched Superman 4. Mm -hmm. And that movie is just completely bonkers and ridiculous. It's horrible. But uh, Lex Luthor, played by Gene Hackman, and Lenny <laughs> Luthor, played by John, John Cryer, <laughs> <laughs> uh, who went on to play Lex Luthor in some of the CW shows, uh, they steal some of Superman's hair and attach it to a nuclear missile. <laughs> and then uh, Superman, to keep the missile from blowing up, throws it into the sun. And of course, it discharges a superhuman nuclear mm. man who's in love with Mariel Hemingway's character for some reason. <laughs> I can't even remember her name. So Superman, nuclear man, fight in space, and he ends up moving the moon to provide, deprive nuclear man of the sun's power, which the sun also powers Superman, so I'm not quite sure how that works. Uh, also, like, that's going to wreak havoc on the Earth. Like, <laughs> kind of defeats yeah, the purpose. Uh, and then uh, nuclear man's corpse is plugged into the U.S. power grid and powers the entire country, I think, indefinitely. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. And then they end it with, like, Christopher Reeve in the U.N. is Superman trying to, like, warn against nuclear war. And it's just such a terrible movie that any message at the end is lost. Dude, I'm going to go watch it tonight. That sounds amazing. What do you mean terrible movie? You just <laughs> sold me on that. The minute you said that nuclear man's corpse is plugged into the power grid, I was like, yes. <laughs> Yes, please. Love movies about the power grid. So getting into the Cold War, um, we talked a little bit about the arms race with Nazi Germany, which we obviously won. <laughs> but then obviously, we, you know, the Cold War itself was an arms race with Russia. And we are still in it to some degree, right? I was reading about the, um, the first bombs that were developed, the bombs that we ended up using against Japan and some of the test bombs and how these were just like these handmade, super, super crappy bombs that <laughs> the stat that i found fascinating is that the little boy the first the bomb dropped on hiroshima only mm. only like a peppercorn sized slice of that piece of uranium material detonated 99 percent wow. of it did not detonate and broke up in the air and uh this was definitely a human rights abuse <laughs> yeah uh, i think lemay you know we'll talk about lemay but he really wanted to you know, see how the bomb would affect an unbombed city. Yeah, and the city really was. It wasn't a military base. Right. And like, mm -hmm. to some extent, it was just an experiment. Talk a little bit about more about Curtis LeMay. Curtis LeMay was a psychopath. He was um, the architect of the Tokyo firebombing. 
And later on, he became the head of SAC, which is Strategic Air Command. After World War II, we basically flew B-52s around the world constantly mm-hmm. with weapons ready to deploy. So the, the whole crux of our nuclear capacity was built on these planes being in the sky at all times, right? So we had planes basically all around the world. And when I talked earlier about uh, an accident in Spain, that was a SAC plane that was flying. Oh, okay. Those were weapons that were intended to be deployed if needed, right? And so LeMay, you know, had pilots needed to be, you know, ready to go always. And so a lot of these pilots were known to be taking taking speed to stay awake. And you look at all these these accidents, right? These air accidents. And part of that is because you have people flying these incredibly dangerous missions with the world's most dangerous weapons on board with no sleep and they're on drugs. And he was advocating for more nukes in the air. I mean, LeMay really believed that like the U.S. needed to act first. He felt that nuclear war was unavoidable mm-hmm. and that it was going to happen and that we would be attacked. And so we needed to find a way to attack first because we would have a much higher likelihood of surviving as a country. That's just terrifying. It's terrifying. It's still the foundation of our nuclear strategy. It's called the nuclear triad, right? So we had mm-hmm. strategic bombers, ICBMs, and then SLBMs, which are submarine-based missiles. Yeah, The Air Force controls the ICBMs and the strategic bombers, and the ICBMs really didn't come online until the 60s. So as that was becoming sort of thought of as the primary way to deliver warheads, LeMay like really didn't want, did not want the, the bombers to be taken out of that equation. He advocated for more and more and eventually lost that argument. Well, and then there's Douglas MacArthur, who after World War II ran Korea, Japan, and the Philippines, like his mm-hmm. own personal fiefdoms. Uh, but he advocated <laughs> dropping 30 to 50 atomic bombs on North Korea to disable their air power. And who knows how that would have turned out because we weren't really fighting North Korea. We were fighting China. Yeah. Um, and while they didn't have nuclear weapons at the time, they had a huge army. And, you know, we could have gone to war with China. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then there's uh, Star Wars, which never were. Yeah. But it cost billions. <laughs> I mean, they gave it a, a punchy name based off a popular movie, thinking that uh, or a punchy nickname, thinking that it would uh, help with its public image. And everybody likes the idea of you know the SDI. You got satellites up there with lasers mm-hmm. doing all sorts of stuff, but it really, it's never worked. And it was re- revived by Bush. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Whatever tenuous safety we have in mutually assured destruction is really shaken with the concept of of SDI. We are at crazy nukes that actually got built. Talk about the jeep mounted recoilless rocket. <laughs> I mean, the idea that you would be on a jeep and you'd have essentially look like a giant with oversized RPG with a ten to twenty ton yield that you could fire. I mean, there's just so many things log- logically wrong with that. I mean, you're shooting. Mm-hmm. A nuclear a nuclear device with more yield than the one the bombs that were dropped on Japan from your Jeep. I mean, <laughs> you're gonna die. <laughs> My favorite here was the unguided air-to-air missiles, uh, and they were just they had you know one had a, the aim aim two for tw- the aim twenty six had a two hundred fifty ton yield, and the air two had a one point five kiloton yield. <laughs> but essentially, it was the idea that if you were in a dogfight with another airplane, who needs uh-huh. to hit them? Yeah, you just you know cook the air around them. It was exactly. unguided, so it wouldn't. <laughs> it wasn't seeking at all. Uh, you just you know fire the general direction and fly out of the way. <laughs> got the nuclear torpedo for use against submarines. Nuclear landmines. I mean, <laughs> it's like. <laughs> 
I mean, can you imagine? We have a hard enough time keeping track of landmines as it is. Uh, and, you know, for good reason, they've been banned in warfare. But you can imagine some some little kid playing, in, you know, in a field and they accidentally, mm-hmm. you know, nuke their village because mm-hmm. some landmine we didn't clean up. The biggest bomb that we ever blew up was 15 megatons, Castle Bravo. And this was kind of in the still in the sort of like experimental phase where we were still trying to figure out like mm-hmm. what was going to be the the right yield ratio to weight uh, of the bomb. How is it going to be deployed? And the United States government had a couple different programs going and eventually Castle Bravo was kind of the, the prototype for the hydrogen bomb that got that got developed and is on the top of the ICBMs. But Castle Bravo was a 15 megaton bomb and it was actually much bigger than we expected it to be. And it mm-hmm. caused like a pretty bad fallout incident. But Tsar Bomba, which is the, <laughs> the biggest bomb that the, the Soviets ever launched, was 58 megatons. And it was supposed to be 100 megatons. Yeah. Like they cut it in half. I, I think the, the crucial difference between the Tsar Bomba and Castle Bravo for me is the if, as far as explosive capacity, the Tsar Bomba was way bigger. But it yeah. didn't generate nearly as much radioactive fallout. Mm-hmm. But Castle Bravo was designed to maximize the radioactive yeah. fallout. And to me, that's just way more cruel because the, the secondary effects are just way nastier. So why did we, why Dave, did we opt to build lower yield bombs in the end? Well, I think uh, the thinking is that when you have a lower yield bomb, it's easier to use mm-hmm. and less likely to provoke a retaliation. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, we have some conventional explosives now that rival our nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. although they don't have the fallout issues that the nuclear weapons do. The Tsar Bomba like was ridiculous like that. They <laughs> they couldn't put it in the bomb bay of any of their planes, even their yeah. biggest planes. They had to strap it to the bottom. There's no way you were ever going to put that on on a missile. So I think part of it was a practical concern, like at a certain size, it just you can't really do anything with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it did have, by, for my money, the coolest name of any of that's the true, nuclear that's arsenal. True. So you forwarded me a tweet uh, a while back about the Project Pluto. And this yeah, is from the, the slamjet. The crazy stuff that never got built, thankfully. <laughs> so Project Pluto was a slamjet, which is a... Um, I know it's an unshielded nuclear reactor, right? Yeah, so supersonic low-altitude missile. The idea was that it would fly supersonic speeds at low altitudes... And that this particular jet was powered by nuclear energy <laughs> and it was, yeah, an unshielded reactor. So it was just like raining uh, fallout <laughs> around the world. It could fly for like a couple of years before, <laughs> before all of its uh, fuel would be depleted. And it had some crazy thing like, like 58 warheads in it. So it would just like drop warheads like yeah. as it flew. And then itself, it was a warhead. So the, the, the sort of like... <laughs> <laughs> the icing on the cake was that it would just like eventually just slam into something and it would have like a final explosion. Like it's just the most ridiculous thing you could imagine. It's like everyone well, got really, really high and thought of like <laughs> the craziest possible weapon. And then they put it together. They're like, yeah, this is the shit. Let's do this. <laughs> uh, and then the, the neutron bomb where they decided that, you know, you know what the problem with nuclear bombs are. It doesn't leave the cities intact. We yeah. want it just to kill the people. <laughs> so dead hand was this like idea that the soviet union had put into place which was like if if all leadership is incapacitated that the system itself would just like basically deliver a final knockout blow on its own 
Well, that's um, kind of what they have set up in North Korea. Mm-hmm. You know, if you were to decapitate the leadership there, they would launch attacks mm-hmm. against South Korea and Japan and mm-hmm. the Philippines and all those countries there. And I believe the final season of The Americans is about Dead Hand. Oh, really? Did you watch that show? I didn't. It's on my list. Dude, you haven't watched The Americans? Oh, my no. God, Dave. You got to watch The Americans. It's so good. Okay, I'll watch The I Americans. Watch I know it has Felicity in it. I think these like artillery things are are like like that's the future, right? Mm-hmm. Super small stuff that's like maybe will destroy like part of a city. Palatable destruction. Exactly. Um, and then of course we have to protect the politicians who wage Oh war. yeah. I remember Which when, is kind uh, of the whole plot of Doctor Strange Love, right? They like have yeah. this whole thing about moving into the caves. <laughs> Get all the elites and move in the caves in a hundred years, they can come out. But this is real though. T- talk to mm-hmm. me about Raven Rock. So Raven Rock is in, I believe, Pennsylvania, and it was Dick Cheney's undisclosed location during <laughs> 9-11 when he oh, was taken away to preserve the command mm-hmm. structure. And, you know, and it's it's one of these underground facilities that's designed to work while being cut off from the world, it has its own command center, and, you know, you can operate and direct all strategic, strategic initiatives from there. And then there's Cheyenne Mountain, which was... It's not secret anymore, but it was a facility that was built underneath an existing resort and was designed to house all of Senate and the House and uh, other members of government. And a lot of people just, you know, they would take a tour of it and say, I hate this. I mean, there's no way I'm leading, leaving my family. And since then, it's been abandoned. And so I'm sure there's some other place we don't know about that's secret. And then the Denver airport, which is rumored to have been built with this purpose in mind although it appears to have been abandoned but there's a whole bunch of there's a whole underground complex under the denver airport Mm -hmm. we need a meerkat bunker dave let's like let's buy some land (laughs) let's do it somewhere cool like let's go to patagonia or something nice (laughs) speaking of patagonia i just i just uh bought in patagonia i'm looking forward to reading that by uh, bruce chatwin nice all right, let's let's uh let's talk about command and control. By law, the only person who can launch a nuclear attack from the US is the president. They don't need a reason. <laughs> so just for fun. Looking back on our, our most recent president who just ended his illustrious tour of duty, uh, he suggested Don Mr. Mr. Trump suggested that we nuke hurricanes. And I just want to take a minute to appreciate how crazy this is. <laughs> So let's let's send a nuclear bomb into a gigantic storm swirling with 300 mile an hour winds and just see what happens. <laughs> well, what was the thought process? I mean, I, I'm not even going to ask that question. I know what the, I know there was no thought process. And then he withdrew us from the INF Treaty, mm-hmm. uh, which was the treaty to ban um, intermediate range weapons. Mm-hmm. And he withdrew us from the Iran Treaty. Now Iran almost has nukes. Um, and he refused to commit to a no first use policy. So he said he wanted to keep all his options open. So he was now, the first president that, in a long time that I know of that said that. Trump did a lot of things that were just firsts in this arena, yeah. right? I mean, when he did his whole fire and fury thing at North Korea, he was actively like he had directed uh, the military to actively come up with potential plans in place to do a first strike. Yeah. I mean, that's scary to me. I remember at the time thinking like, this we're on our way towards developing these plans, but in fact, they were already developed. Like he was, he was very interested in using them. Um, then there's the, the football. And the, <laughs> there's the football and the biscuit. 
And everybody knows about the football. It's the briefcase yeah. that the dude follows the president around with. But what mm-hmm. people don't often know is there's something called the biscuit, which the president is supposed to keep on them. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like, I, I don't know what's specifically on it. I think it's like the codes that correspond. So mm-hmm. you need it to, to launch your attack. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> Jimmy Carter accidentally left his in his suit when he sent it out to a dry cleaner. And uh, Bill Clinton <laughs> lost his, allegedly lost his. And then Reagan's had to be confiscated when he went to the hospital. Now, is this the is this the impetus behind the White Stripes song "Ball and Biscuit"? I don't know. Maybe. I hope so. We, maybe we need to add that to our playlist. <laughs> um, then uh, Nixon got drunk once and threatened to nuke nuke North Korea over a downed plane. Um, <laughs> and allegedly, when he was right right in the days before he was resigning. Uh, they transferred command and control to Gerald Ford because they were afraid he was going to get drunk and try and la- launch the missiles. But that's un- unconstitutional. It is. That's like what makes it so like crazy. Wow. That's that's what like I wonder. I think about this with Trump a lot. Like, had Trump actually decided in the last days of his presidency to launch an attack, would the military have actually done it? I theorize that they would not. They would have broken the chain of command. In the 50s and 60s, you had the military, which was really like kind of like chomping at the bit mm-hmm. to like get at it, right? And the pre- presidents, you know, Republican or, or Democrat, like really, you know, kept a sober view of things and kept us out of war. And now it's like the military is like, no, we know how terrible this is. This is like absolutely last resort. And yeah. we've got someone who like on the president presidential side that is like really wants to to do it i mean that's to me terrifying well i think a lot of it has to do with the movement beyond world war ii and Mm -hmm. an active military stance Mm -hmm. Uh, you know we had we've had conflicts we had korea and iraq and vietnam but nowhere near the scale of world war ii and so Mm -hmm. a lot of these military people at the head of the military you know came up in the time of peacetime and are used Mm -hmm. to the stance of trying to preserve that rather than mm-hmm. always in the, the mind of wanting to win, win the war. So what are our takeaways here, Dave? I think they're effectively useless. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think uh, the consequences are too high for them to be useful. Mm-hmm. Um, the but, reality is that one day there is going to be an accident mm-hmm. that is going to be really, really, really bad. And realistically, that's probably going to happen before they're used in a wartime scenario. I was going to say, in this world of non-nation state actors, terrorist organizations and the like, um, how do you retaliate against a non-nation state mm-hmm. with a nu- that uses a nuke? I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, if Russia nukes us, we nuke them and everybody dies. But, you know, if some non-nation state from the Middle East nukes us, what are we going to do? Like, nuke Saudi Arabia or something? Like, that, mm-hmm. that doesn't work because it's not the government that launched the attack. How do you feel about nuclear energy, Dave? What is, what is the future of it? You know, honestly, I think there's an inherent fear of nuclear nuclear technology that's going to keep it hobbled as an option. Mm-hmm. But I think if we are going to move off fossil fossil fuels and fuels in any type of realistic timeline, we have to embrace nuclear energy. And a lot of the problems that we see with nuclear power come from plants that were built 50, 60 years ago. Yeah, high and, cost, uh, high complexity. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there is, I believe the technology has progressed a lot since then. And yeah. um, new nuclear reactors could be a lot safer and, you know, solve a lot of our energy problems. They have some and, designs which are really small and modular, mm-hmm. and you can kind of combine them in series, which is really interesting. 
Yeah, that's that's actually I, I'm really interested in that. You could have one like power a block in New York or mm-hmm. power community, um, and yeah, they're in series, and it becomes less much less vulnerable because mm-hmm. there's a lot of points you'd have to take out a lot in order for it to um, to collapse, like it did mm-hmm. in Texas uh, recently. I'm really curious what the future of um, sort of our the the jurisdiction of nuclear weapons is in the United States with the advent of the space force. Um, hmm. what's going to happen? Um, like right now the air force, uh, has a jurisdiction over the ICBMs, but they go through space, right? Yeah. Are we going to go towards a, a space-based delivery system? So I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. Yeah. I don't think a lot of thought was given to the division, <laughs> the division of power between the, the existing structures and the new space force. And so we have to kind of figure that out, out on the fly now. I think you could take that 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 clause. Not a lot of thought was given to and and apply that to almost every decision made between the years 2017 and 2021. But <laughs> no politics. <laughs> no politics zone. <laughs> I just got arrested by the no politics police. So yes. Dave, I think next week is uh, episode 20 of season one. And then that's going to be the end of season one. We're going to wrap it up and move on to season two. But what are we going to talk about next week? The Mandela effect. Which, which is? Which is the idea that there are huge amounts of people that remember things differently than what seems to be reality. And the thought that somehow reality is being changed. We'll have lots of examples of this. But on a sillier note, there's the Berenstain Bears. And many people remember the book being spelled stain s-t-a-i-n at the end of the the name when in reality it was or no it's and anyways the it, of that. it's the opposite of that yeah yeah people remember the spelling wrong and everybody's shocked that it's actually spelled the other way it's spelled with the a not the e and there's and, some people who claim this is evidence of of uh multiple realities or multiple yes. universes yes that the multiverse expresses itself through the mandela effect so we will explore that next week. I would just urge everybody, make sure that you go subscribe to our podcast on Spotify or your podcasting service of choice. And with that, I am Become Death, Destroyer of Worlds. And I am Maurice. And you've been mm-hmm. chilling on Planet of the Meerkats. And we'll see you next week for episode 20. Peace and love and prosperity. <laughs>《Planet of the Meerkats is produced by Neil Fries and David Garrison, and our theme music is by Tawny Frogmouth.